Welcome to Creating Presence with your hosts, Dr. Sandra Bloom and Sarah Yannese. Over the next hour, you'll learn about the processes that steer our hearts and minds and how to improve our collective social health. Welcome to Creating Presence. I'm Dr. Sandra Bloom, and I'm here with my co-host, Sarah Yannese. Hi, everyone. Sarah and I have developed an organizational intervention to help organizations really integrate trauma-informed service and practice. And we use the acronym PRESENCE. We use PRESENCE as, as each letter means something. In the podcast, we're looking at each of the letters and talking with experts and thought leaders in a variety of areas to help us expand our thinking and our work to improve what we think of as collective social health. So today we're focused on the R in, in it, it stands for reverence and restoration. And we're going to take a deeper dive into this topic with a social health focus on interdependence. So when we're thinking about reverence and restoration, we're defining that as deep respect and healing. And those two things are really important because there are lots of different ways that people can experience trauma. Um, some are economic, systemic, interpersonal, uh, and also cultural. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we think about inter interdependence. Um, and traumatic experiences can distort our worldview and the way that we think about ourselves and the way that we think about other people. Sometimes that's because people who've experienced trauma, adversity, or chronic stress, um, they've had the experience that the people that they should have been able to trust did things that were not trustworthy or they may have been pressured or bullied to do things um, that were not aligned with their moral values. Uh, or they may have been rewarded or given gifts for tolerating abuse. Uh, there may have been benefits to tolerating abuse. And all of that experience can really shift how we think about what's right or wrong. Um, and so we need to focus on restoring or um, repairing that worldview. Um, it also can influence how we think about justice or fairness, and that may be because, may be because uh, the people who did harm were not held accountable or uh, they may not have been believed about the trauma. And so that's why we focus so much on reverence and restoration uh, to create these experiences of respect and healing. In the, in the trauma field, what you're talking about, Sarah, really has often been written about in three intertwined and interrelated uh, concepts of historical trauma, collective trauma, and cultural trauma. And a, a good definition for historical trauma that I really appreciated comes from Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart, who is a Lakota professor of social work. And she wrote, the cumulative emotional and psychological wounding over the lifespan and across generations describes historical trauma. And as I understand it, and I, and I think we'll get into, indigenous people have a different relationship with nature 
than many Western people and see all living things as related and interdependent and therefore have a really deep respect for the well-being of the planet, which really we all need to embrace. Yeah, in our social structure, we really highlight independence. Um, it's one of the values of our society. Um, and sometimes that really runs counter to recovery um, and connection and well-being. So we're going to expand this conversation with our guest, Dawn Isaac. Dawn is the Director of Organizational Development and Cultural Services at Marymount in Winnipeg, Canada. And many of the people at Marymount are of Indigenous descent. And at Marymount, they believe that cultural awareness and identity are key components to healing. Also, Marymount was the first pilot program for creating presence. Um, and Dawn is actually now one of the coaches uh, working with organizations implementing creating presence. So welcome, Dawn. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to see you all. Um, I'm hoping it's okay with you if we sort of, for me, start start our time off together in a good way. And uh, we do that in Canada in a good way by doing our land acknowledgements. Uh, it's a really good way of honoring um, where, you know, the, the ownership of our land and our ancestral ties to the land. So for me today in Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's located on Treaty 1 territory. And Treaty 1 territory are the ancestral lands of the Anishinaabe, Inanu, and Dakota Yati people. The land where we live and work is land which the seven First Nations of this area agreed to share through Treaty Number 1 in 1871. We'd like to acknowledge the generosity um, of these seven First Nations. And we'd also like to acknowledge that we are on the birthplace and homeland of the Red River Métis Nation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's great to have you, Dawn. Can you, can you tell us a little more about what Marymount is and why the issues around historical trauma are so important to healing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Marymount is um, a, a youth and family social services organization. We were founded in 1911 um, by the Sisters of the Good Shepherd, uh, initially um, as a priory, and then um, also adding a justice diversion program for young women. Um, today, we work with probably about 2,000 um, youth, children, and families on an annual basis. Uh, we have a number of programs in Winnipeg, um, also in Thompson, which is um, about eight hours north of Winnipeg, so northern Manitoba. So we have uh, crisis stabilization units, uh, uh, youth addiction stabilization units. We have community group care, uh, group care programs for kids 8 to 17. We have a semi-secure assessment and treatment programs located right um, in Marymount campus. We have a sexual abuse treatment program, treatment foster care program, uh, clinical and cultural healing services based on a two-eyed sing approach that I'll talk a little bit later about. We have youth education uh, services, including an independent therapeutic school right on the campus. We have uh, independent living programs for kids 17 to 21 who are aging out of the child welfare system. We have a young parents programming, maternal health and early childhood support program. And we also have uh, a training center. 
on campus as well. So we're a fairly large organization. We have uh, approximately 400 staff um, and we have a main campus like I spoke about. And we also have programs out in the community as well. Um, I guess what I could say about uh, the importance of, of doing this kind of work is that, you know, when you have an organization this old, especially an organization, you know, that had ties to uh, the Catholic Church, uh, founded by, uh, you know, an order of, of sisters, there, you know, a lot of the um, values, while they might have been, you know, the intentions might have been, you know, good, created um, some profound harms, particularly for Indigenous people. And I think in doing the work that we're doing to have a, you know, trauma-informed, you know, best practice lens on this, we have to do this work in a culturally relevant way so that our service delivery is actually meaningful for uh, the kids that we're working with. Um, And also to, I guess, reconcile, you know, the history that we have here and some of the damages that have been done as part of our collective trauma narrative you know, so that we can all kind of move forward in that, in that healing movement. I want our listeners to know more about what brought you to this work. What, what has made this work important to you personally? Yeah, I wish we had the whole hour, but (laughs) (laughs) I guess for me, uh, what I'm going to, you know, I I thought long and hard about this and, and really um, it, it comes down to a point in my life that was profoundly changed um, and impacted and started my own healing journey and and connection with my cultural identity. And it was about 15 years ago, um, my first son was born and he was in the hospital. Um, I was working in television at the time. I mean, it was totally different, you know, career path for me. Um, But my mom and Nana um, were, um, they were starting to do some work with a center called the All No Renewal Center. And it's a, it's a center that provides counseling and therapeutic supports to families and kids. And my Nana, um, Elder, Dr. Elder Mary Kershane, was called by um, uh, the people that founded this organization. And they were actually the Missionary Oblate Sisters. And the Missionary Oblate Sisters were the same order of nuns that ran the residential school that uh, my Nana attended for 10 years, and my mom also attended as a day scholar. So they called her um, and they they asked her to join the board of directors because they were wanting to actually, you know, make sure that they were doing work with Indigenous families in a good way. And uh, and my Nana right away hung up. She was triggered. She hung up the phone. No, I can't. She heard the, you know heard that voice. And but the nuns were very persistent. And eventually, you know, my Nana agreed that she was going to do this because it was going to be meaningful work and also help her on her own journey of of um, of reclaiming her voice and um, also learning about forgiveness. So my mom and Nana both started with the Alno Renewal Center. My mom is a social worker, so she'd been working in the child welfare system for forever. And she was tasked with developing a First Nations family attachment program. So looking at, you know, attachment theories through an Indigenous lens and and how that would have meaning for more uh, collective communal uh, family settings rather than just a, you know, a dyadic approach to things. So... For me, I was working television, but I was also in the hospital with my child who was quite ill. And my mom and Nana were coming in talking to me about family attachment and what it meant to have multiple caregivers and, and traditional parenting. And it was so new to me because we didn't I didn't grow up talking about these sorts of values. And um, when it was time for me to go back to work, they said, why don't you come and work with us? 
come to Alno, uh, work with us. Let's start developing a program, a training program and a healing program with three generations. And so I said, sure. And it was the first time we had our first training session. It was the first time that I had heard my mom and my Nana's story of residential school ever. I was sitting in an audience with a hundred other people and I had never heard what happened to them in residential school. It wasn't talked about. We didn't learn about it really. It, we didn't recognize that, that residential schools weren't just a chapter in our history. It was 147 years of Canada's history where residential schools were in operation. And as we were talking about this, it was like this puzzle piece, you know, was, was, was put into my, my personal puzzle. And I started to understand myself. I started to understand how disconnected I was from my cultural identity and how lost it made me feel throughout my entire life. It really, you know, created this shame-based identity. And, um, and so for me, it was, it was the start of this healing journey of understanding who I was as Anishinaabe Kwe. And it was understanding, you know, the, the profound resilience of not only my family, but of, of uh, Indigenous communities across Canada. And, and so we, we did this, we worked together for 10 years. We uh, trained hundreds and hundreds of people uh, across Canada. We sat in ceremony um, with people. I received my spirit name um, in my early 30s, um, which, which I can tell you later. Um, but it, you know, it was just this work where all of a sudden I could understand that this was where I was meant to be. This was my purpose. Um, and, I, and I finally started to, started to understand who I was a, as a person and started, started to have a voice again, I guess. And so it was also during this time that, you know, we uh, discovered your work, Sandy, because a lot of the organizations that we were training and we were working with were seeing real parallels between, you know, the collective trauma of the individuals they were working with and what they were seeing in their entire organizations as becoming traumatized themselves. That's and it was... It was it was amazing. Again, another puzzle piece, another light bulb moment to say, wow, like organizations are actually living systems and they can hold collective trauma in them. And, you know, so we, we did all this work. It was amazing. And that's where I met you, Sunny, the first time with my mom and Nana yeah. and had, had some really amazing conversations because it was just these puzzle pieces coming together. And so I think Dawn, yeah, we'll have more puzzle pieces to put yeah, together absolutely. after the break. Sure. We want to thank you for listening to Creating Presence. And coming up after the break, we'll continue our talk with Don Isaac about reverence and restoration. We'll be right back after these messages. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. If you would like your organization to be aligned in its values, practices, and skills to be trauma-informed, trauma-responsive, and trauma-resilient, Creating Presence is the program you are looking for. The Creating Presence model is an online and coach certification program authored by internationally renowned Dr. Sandra Bloom. This program is designed to help your organization become certified as a safe and value-aligned place for both your staff and clients. 
Creating Presence is managed by Lakeside, the host of this broadcast. For more information as to how your organization can create presence, go to creatingpresence.net. Lakeside, your resource for trauma-responsive care. If you would like to know more about trauma and adversity, Lakeside Global Institute offers a series of 101 workshops on a variety of topics related to trauma. Available workshops include Foundations of Trauma, The Skills of Trauma, Vicarious Trauma, Youth Trauma, Cultural Sensitivity and Trauma, Racism and Trauma, Trauma and Grief, Social Media and Trauma, and much more. Workshops are available live web-based and online. To learn more about Lakeside Global Institute workshops, go to lakesidetraining.org. Lakeside, your resource for trauma-responsive care. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Welcome back to Creating Presence. Sandy, Sarah, and their guests will discuss strategies and innovative practices for restoring our collective social health. Welcome back to Creating Presence. Sandy and I are talking with our guest, Dawn Isaac, about social health um, and understanding the importance of reverence and restoration. So Dawn, as an Indigenous person yourself, what's been important to you in creating and experiencing reverence and restoration in your professional life, you were beautifully said what it has meant to you personally, but what what has it meant to you in your work life? You know, I think uh, I think when I think about my personal and my professional life, oftentimes I think of them um, as as being connected, as being part of a whole of who I am. And I think maybe that's you know an indigenous ways of of thinking and knowing is that everything is interconnected, everything has relationship with with each other. And so when I think of my professional life, you know, it, it's also what has meaning for me in my personal life. And that's really about thinking about, you know, reconciliation um, in terms of the harms that, you know, colonial institutions have, have, um, have done to Indigenous people. But it also makes me think about, you know, the power of reclamation, the power of, 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 of having our voices, of taking up space, of giving the opportunities to bring our value systems into the workplace so that our values, both personal and professional, can guide um, the type of work that we're doing. And, you know, in Marymount, I see that when we can, with, with the kids that we're working with, which are predominantly Indigenous kids, 85%, we need, it is our responsibility to create an environment for them to be able to connect to who they are um, as Indigenous people, to be able to feel that sense of pride, to reclaim their place uh, in a system that was broken and that was designed to basically destroy them, um, and to be able to reclaim their voice. So that those, those sets of values, all of us in the organization, you know, have to embrace so that we can actually do true healing work. And, and I guess that's the difference as well, is that, that it's, it's finding that set of values that we're all aligned around for a greater purpose. 
Um, it's not just, you know, a lot of people just coming to work and clocking in and clocking out and, you know, I'm, I'm coming and I'm doing treatment on children and, and this is a treatment plan for them and, and we'll either fix them or we won't. It's not about that. It's about actually creating an environment where we recognize that we're all connected and we don't see our kids as clients. Indigenous people will refer to each other as our relatives, so when we're talking about people we're working with and for, we're talking about working with and for our relatives. And when you can embrace those values into your work and when everyone in this environment starts seeing each other relationally like that as our relatives, as somebody that could be your child or you're an auntie or you're an uncle, it changes the way we think about the work that we're doing. There are a lot of overlaps in um Canada's history and the U.S. history around residential schools and um, just historical and current oppression. Um, and so I'm curious what it's been like for you to work in a place where that history is still alive. Yeah. Yeah, I, I asked myself that a lot. And to be honest, to think about still working within a system that had uh, has um, and had roots to the Catholic, um, the Catholic health system. Um, I think for us, it was this willingness that we were working within a system where Indigenous kids were still being placed. And I had a choice as an Indigenous person to either leave and maybe try to find a system that was more aligned with my own value set or to come into a system that had very deep roots um, that might be really difficult to change, but to actually try to change that system and, and, and have a willingness of folks and allies and people in the system that were wanting to actually make the system better and make the environment for the kids that we're working with better so that we could actually see healing. Because fundamentally we're here as healers and we wanna create something that's gonna work. And so it was the willingness of our executive director, Nancy Parker, who said, I want to walk this journey. I'm committed. We're committed. The board is committed to walking this journey. And what is that going to look like? And so the first thing that we had to do with truth and reconciliation um, is the truth piece. And so we had to be willing to sit in real discomfort and own the truth and own the narrative and own the harms that we were responsible for, that, our, that, the, that Mary Mount was responsible for. Before we could do any other work, the reconciliation work was secondary. You had to actually own the truth and be comfortable with that discomfort. And, you know, it's a big part that, of it. Go ahead. That really must have taken bravery on the part of leadership to be mm -hmm. willing to hear that um, and integrate that into the organization. Yeah, it, 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 absolutely. It was a real willingness to be vulnerable. And I think, you know, when we were doing Creating Presence and we were thinking about, you know, where, what we wanted this organization to look like and we wanted it to be a place of healing, not just for, for our relatives and, and the kids that we're working with, but for, for ourselves, there had to be a certain degree of vulnerability. And that, and, and that first step had to, be, had to be taken collectively as a leadership team. And, and it's not something that happened overnight. You know, it was something that had to be really meaningful and it had to be authentic. Uh, it wasn't just like sort of, a, oh yeah, you know, we're sorry for this and this, now let's just move on. There had to be a degree of authentic, like not a degree, but a real authenticity into the words and the truths that we were holding. 
Um, and so that did, you're right. It took a, it took a ton of bravery um, on the part of our board and on the part of of Nancy. But I think there was a real desire to start to start seeing change and 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 a real people were starting to see that this system was broken, not just for for the 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 kids that it was there to serve, but for the people that were working within it. You know, and they and they wanted to make it different. You know, they wanted to have meaning. And so that really that that really led off, you know, our work into the reconciliation piece. Um, we were, were committed to calls to action number 22, uh, where there are 92 calls to action with Truth and Reconciliation Commission that that they put out for to help guide uh, the Canadian landscape in reconciliation. And call to action 22 is that we call upon those who can effect change within the Canadian healthcare system to recognize the value of Aboriginal healing practices and use them in the treatment of Aboriginal patients in collaboration with Aboriginal healers and elders where requested by Aboriginal uh, patients. Wow. And so that has that that has really been some of the underpinning of of starting the work that we were looking at doing, um, and and shifting our entire uh, clinical model to a two-eyed seeing approach. So major paradigm shifts all over the place was kind of happening while doing presence and trying to get everyone aligned around a similar set of values and 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 working to reconcile some of the collective trauma narratives that happened within the building with staff. So it was kind of all happening at once. Wow. Can you <laughs> define that a little bit more? You, you said you were shifting to a, will you say it again, a, a two-eyed... Yeah, uh, we our clinical framework is is actually now uh, it's called a reconciled healing model. Um, so our reconciled healing model it was a name that was gifted from uh, Doctor uh, Elder Elder Doctor Ed Connors, and I believe both of you happened to meet him when you're in Canada. But he gifted us this name, and what it really what it looked at was looking at um, healing in a different way. So we were, we were, we were developing treatment plans and treatment plans were so deficit based. It was like, we're going to come in, we're going to look at all the things that are wrong with you. And then we're going to create a treatment plan and we're going to fix you. And, and, and that's what this is. And so what we first needed to start shifting the way our way of thinking was that it's not going to be treatment plans. We're going to develop healing plans and it's not us that are going to develop the healing plan. The, the healing plan is actually going to be the include the voice and choice and power of our relatives and the kids we're working with because they can guide their own healing journey. And what they need is a circle of support of people who are going to walk alongside of them in that journey. And so that was how we shifted our frame, framework. And then we started thinking about inputs into this model and, and, and needing to use two eyes. So needing to look at uh, obviously the Western, Western therapeutic, you know, healing interventions that we're all used to. Um, and then also really validate and authenticate the Indigenous healing um, services that we were also providing to kids, but were really seen as something that was separate and, and like it was an extracurricular thing and they could do it or they couldn't do it as activity, as opposed to actually validating and authenticating that it is, it is, it is a healing modality that has real, uh, real power in the journey of the kids that we're working with. And so we developed, developed a model with that two-eyed seeing. So you're seeing through your Indigenous eye and your Indigenous worldview, and also seeing through your Western eye and your Western worldview, and the real need for reciprocity between both. 
Mm-hmm. So that was the only way it was going to work is that we didn't want to see them as two separate things. We had to learn to see through them together. And in seeing through those eyes together, it required a lot of willingness and reciprocity on uh, on the part of our clinicians, particularly. I'm really struck by your comments uh, in response to, to my question about sort of being in a system with these historical roots in oppression. Um, what came up for me is my connection to foster care. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I'm sort of spinning in thinking about applications uh, of, of everything that you're describing to that system as well. Um, I I'm a foster mom. Um, my partner and I are fostering a baby who we are hoping to adopt uh, in the in the next year. Um, yeah. But I have very mixed feelings about being part of a system that has historically really done harm uh, to communities of color uh, and has been part of systemic oppression. Um, and I also feel really strongly about lending my voice inside that system uh, as a change agent. Mm-hmm. And so I really appreciated that and and really think about how important it is to, to pull these concepts around reverence and restoration um, into so many of our systems. Mm-hmm. Applications are endless. Yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. I, I have another question too, Dawn. So because Mary Mound has Indigenous and non-Indigenous children, correct, yep. and families. Yep. So are, is your model, the two-eyed model, which was beautifully <laughs> expressed, does, does that apply to everybody in the, in the system? Uh, you know, absolutely. And, and, I, and it's sort of in answering your question, Sandy, kind of, speaks to what Sarah was talking about is that is this model isn't just for indigenous kids what this model recognizes is every human being's need to have a connection to themselves as individuals you know Murray Sinclair he said there are four questions every person needs to know a senator Murray Sinclair he led the truth and reconciliation commission just for context um, the four questions we need to know are where do i come from where am I going? Why am I here? And who am I? And when we think about that, this is the, what the model hopes to, to answer for kids, regardless of their culture. But who are they? What are their cultural values? You know, what are those cultural values that underpin who we are, our spiritual identity, our, our whole identity of self? Who are the people in our corner? Who are, the, who are our root system? You know, who are our circle of support, the people that are going to ground us and that are going to be there for us? What are our values? You know, what are our goals? These are all things that every single human being, you know, needs to have for themselves, right? And it might look different. So if we have, you know, we have a kid that's coming in and maybe they're of Scottish, uh, they have their Scottish Scottish descent, you know, which my clinical director happens to be. So we've had many conversations about the parallels between the clan system and Scotland and Indigenous <laughs> folks. But she said this model has meaning for her because she thinks about her identity as a Scottish person and where she came from and her connections and her root systems, right? So it, it has applicability regardless of, of who you are as a person. Because fundamentally, Fundamentally, it's about discovering who we are and our direction in life. 
Tell us about what you're encountering in your coaching with other organizations as you're, you know, working with creating presence and bringing a trauma-informed model uh, to other places. Yeah, I, you know, it's really interesting because we've coached, you know, organizations in the United States and Canada and even in Singapore, and they all seem to have really similar challenges, regardless of whether they're, you know, working in the healthcare system or social services. And I think there's, there's a certain amount of fatigue um, in this real Western go, 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 um, you know, very kind of almost overly boundaried, um, you know, system where you're not allowed to see yourself as a person in that system and you just deliver and deliver, deliver. And there, so there is a lot of burnout we're seeing, but we're also seeing people that really desperately want a change for themselves. They want to work in an environment where they feel safe, where safety is valued, you know, where, where they can, they, they can see their set of values and actually truly believe that those are the values that are underpinning their work in terms of the way the organization is supporting them. Um, and, and really that, that, are, that are willing to say, you know what, I think we're ready to be a little bit vulnerable here. I think we're in a place where we actually want to talk about wellness and not just sort of like giving lip service to here's your wellness plan and you're going to go out and get yoga or whatever it is, but really thinking about wellness from, you know, from in a broader lens where what are we doing as an organization to support organizational wellness and what's my place in that? So uh, seen a lot of excitement, seen a lot of, you know, obviously a lot of challenges, wondering where to start, um, but, but seeing a real appetite for wanting that change. Yeah. It's I think exciting. hearing you talk about this um, it reminds me of just how important it is to shift from thinking about treatment, which is an externally driven process mm -hmm. to healing and recovery, um, mm -hmm. which is an internally driven process. And that really stands out to me in what you've said. Mm -hmm. I think those four questions that you say them again for us, Dawn. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a senator, a senator. He was a judge, Murray Sinclair. Um, where do I come from? Where am I going? Why am I here? And who am I? Uh, and that is so critically important, I think, for all of us and for people who are in treatment environments, even more critical because they're often so lost and bewildered. Um, and so much of that is part of what the symptom picture is about, that, that the suffering that's going on is because they don't have any answers to those questions. So so I, I really appreciate that, and I appreciate that you're a part of all of this change that we're hoping to see happen. So thank you. So thank you so very much. much. Yes. Well, the pleasure is all mine. I, I, I think for me, what I can say now and what I feel so proud about being able to say is I know who I am in my language. I can say, I know who I am. I know my spirit name, I know my purpose, I know my community, I know my clan. And I think if you can give that gift to, you know, the kids that you're working with, whether they're Indigenous or not, you can answer those four questions. And organizationally, collectively can answer those questions. I think that's when we really start to see that, that healing momentum happen and build. Thank you, Dawn. Yeah. And we want to thank you for listening to Creating Presence. 
Uh, we just heard from Don Isaac. And coming up after the break, we'll talk with Robin Miller, who serves as the CEO of McKillop Family Services in Melbourne, Australia. And given the time distance, the difference, um, and the distance, uh, the interview with Robin Miller has been pre-recorded. We'll be back after the break. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. If you wish to go into production to provide your own trauma training, Lakeside Productions can provide you studio rental, design, filming, editing, learning management support, and consultation for video streaming for your organization or systems of care. Lakeside Productions has developed over 50 courses and videos that are all trauma-based and customized with a variety of applications. If you would like to have more information regarding Lakeside Productions, go to our website at lakesidetraining.org. Lakeside, your resource for trauma-responsive care. In today's schools, there's arisen a critical need to equip educators and empower professionals to guide students as to how to overcome life obstacles and become successful and resilient. If you are a school professional, Neurologic by Lakeside can be a tremendous resource for your school and staff. Neurologic by Lakeside provides knowledge, tools, and practical solutions that can be implemented immediately to support a student's success and improve the school community. Through the training, coaching, resources, and curriculum, you can discover the expertise you need to meet the challenges that educators face each and every day. For more information, go to lakesidetraining.org. Lakeside, your resource for trauma-responsive care. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Welcome back to Creating Presence. Sandy, Sarah, and their guests will discuss strategies and innovative practices for restoring our collective social health. Welcome back to Creating Presence. I'm Dr. Sandra Bloom, and I'm with my co-host, uh, Sarah Yannese, and today we're focusing on the R in Creating Presence for Reverence and Restoration. And we're going to continue our conversation with our next guest, Robin Miller. Hello, Sandy. Lovely to see you. As you can tell, Robin is in Australia, and we're really happy to have you here, Robin. Robin is the CEO at McKillop Family Services in Melbourne, Australia, which is another trauma-informed organization that really acknowledges the inherent Aboriginal spirituality of Australia and supports the self-determination of the Aboriginal people. Like Marymount, they are passionate about working with communities so that all families, children, and young people can thrive with a strong foundation of belonging and cultural identity. So we're very happy to have you, Robin. Thanks for doing this. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Robin, I have known your work for many, many years. Um, and one of the things that I'm most excited to uh, hear from you about and, and learn about from you is how you think about historical and cultural trauma in your work. Ah, oh, Sarah, the historical trauma, and particularly for Australian First Nations people, 
uh, is and the cultural trauma and historical trauma you can't sort of differentiate because the past isn't past, it's still with us. And in Australia, we have a shocking legacy of genocide, really, of our first people. So that the, um, the we've just actually had what they call Australia Day here, and Aboriginal people and many of us call it Invasion Day, mm. um, which was, you know, the 26th of January. And what um, what we did at McKillop for the first time, it's a public holiday, and we actually said, no, we want people to work because out of respect that... Um, People had a choice, of course, if there were family gatherings. It's a it's a big sort of national holiday. Um, but more and more and more um, ground-up communities, businesses, agencies like ours in the social services are saying this is an, yet another painful lack of acknowledgement for our Aboriginal people. So it's particularly relevant to me today, the topic of reverence mm-hmm. and, um, and the impact of that historical trauma and what we can do about it in terms of restoration and and our duty of care, you know, to stand in solidarity with Aboriginal people. When we say Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia, so but I, I, I um, uh, beg people's forgiveness for shortening it. So Torres Strait Islands are up in the north um, of Australia and that same stolen generations is what we refer to, where children were taken away. There was this absolute, um, so previous uh, government policies from those earliest days of settlement in the um, late 1800s um, right through to um, the beginning of last century was, and, and, you know, right through you see this this intent for child protection to be removing Aboriginal children from, from, their, from their communities, from their families. And, and oh. the pain, and, sorry, Sarah, you go. Robin, did you say that um, it, although it's a holiday, you're, one of the ways that you were trying to honour the work is by having people come into work? Can you explain yeah. that a little bit? Well, that was giving a choice because um, out of respect and reverence for what we acknowledge uh, is the impact of that invasion. Of So there was a, um, a, a whole government policy based on law that was terra nullis that Australia was empty when the uh, British colonisers came and Captain Cook, you know, in the late 1700, I should know the history, but 1780, around about that time, invaded Australia, came to Australia and claimed Australia. There's never been a treaty, unlike New Zealand, with the Maori people. And so from then on, there was curiosity about Aboriginal people, but they were never even counted in the census. It wasn't until the 1960s, that Aboriginal people um, were counted uh, as a people, yeah, under flora and fauna. It was dreadful, right? So so those previous government policies have have done enormous harm. And for us who work in the social services and looking after children in care, um, we see the legacy of that through trauma, that has been transgenerationally transmitted, and it's not history; it's, it's actually present. So that that government policy of removing children, and and not just removing children, but relocating Aboriginal people from their sacred land. So great uh, communities were relocated. It's almost like playing on a chessboard. I oh, will take them and put them there. You know, they set up missions, and. Um, some of those missions have now become um, 
local uh, communities where Aboriginal people have chosen to stay and Aboriginal corporations have developed. But there's a huge legacy of pain and people were murdered, you know, and it's this shadow history of Australia, the lucky country. Well, it hasn't been lucky for Aboriginal people at all, you know. So it's so important that uh, we train all of our, we have 2,000 staff over that now at, at McKillop Family Services. Um, and I've been here now, for, I'm in my eighth year as CEO. And the CEO before me, Michaela and um, Paul, also shared um, a great um, appreciation and, and um, reverence for the impact of that colonisation of Aboriginal people and those past government policies that have done so much damage and created so much trauma and pain. And that, that's impacted at every level because for Aboriginal people, land is sacred. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the connection to land and community is a very different concept um, than to non-Indigenous people. It's, it's intrinsic uh, to the sense of spirituality and respect for elders, respect for storylines, uh, respect or in uh, traditional Aboriginal culture, who could marry. There's a very complex and um, beautiful uh, culture that's that's deeply um, rooted in respect for land and place. And when that was all uh, sort of um, what's the, uh, removed, it was not respected. There was no reverence for it from those early colonisers. And then government policies deliberately tried to um, white out, if you like, um, the um, the culture, you know. So in WA, for example, there was a terrible sort of um, history where literally the children's colour of their skin was sort of graded where, where they would be sent. Siblings were separated. Wow. Um, children were put into um, big institutions of care, um, you know. So there was a very deliberate intent and misguided thinking that they were somehow saving the children from neglect, not understanding the beauty of Aboriginal culture. And um, so this this legacy lives on. And so if you look at the statistics today, if you're Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander, you're 10 times more likely to end up in the out-of-home care system or in the child protection system, 12 times in some places in Australia. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's um, so when we talk when we talk about historical and cultural trauma, it's um, it's you know it's on like the we have um, you know ten times more than we should. So Aboriginal um, in terms of the numbers in the population and then in the numbers in the out of home care population, it's at least ten times out of whack. Yeah. Yeah. Similar here in the United States. And Canada. Yeah. You know, Um, wherever our ancestors, you know, who (laughs) came from. Yeah. Um, Go ahead, dear. I was going to say this there's then a whole lot of blame because um, Aboriginal culture didn't have alcohol. um, But of course, with the introduction of that and white man diseases, so, you know, diabetes, heart disease, and you know, a little bag of sugar, a little bag of bag of flour was traded, you know, for um, or giving a few blankets for great, you know, areas of land. Right. And so there was this terrible sort of injustice, yeah? Mm-hmm. And um, so the trauma response for Aboriginal communities is one of desolation and despair when they lost children, the grief, the loss, the trauma, losing land, losing history, losing culture, 
and being looked down upon uh, and stigmatised. And so alcohol problems, you know, grew. And then, of course, non-Indigenous Australians say, oh, they're all hopeless. And so these, these racist sort of comments that you hear um, and not understanding that legacy of trauma. And, and so that hidden part of not hidden, well, it wasn't taught to us. When we were at school, we, we didn't hear that part of Australia's history. You know, it was almost like it started when Captain Cook came instead of the world's, the world's oldest living culture, 60,000 years of rich culture um, has been uh, completely um, was sort of whited out of the, of the history books. It's not now. It's actually there's a whole, there's a whole um, groundswell of That's change, good. which thank God for that. Yes, yeah. I wanted to ask you how the government has responded and how do they respond to the work that you're doing trying to help these kids and families to heal? So in more recent decades, so there's been a greater awareness um, of the need to respect and not do to Aboriginal communities, to work with, to see Aboriginal people as experts on bringing up Aboriginal children. So the whole policy setting has changed that um, non-Indigenous agencies should be transitioning Aboriginal children to Aboriginal agencies. So there's been, a, a, and particularly in Victoria, one of the states of Australia, um, the, um, there's been a whole legislative change to make the CEO of the Aboriginal agency uh, the person in charge of the child protection investigation and in, and in providing the care uh, so that... Um, there's a, a a very deliberate legislative, so that's that structural change that's that's being rolled out as we speak, mm. and the expectation across every state in Australia um, that it's called the Aboriginal Child Placement Principle that is enshrined in legislation that Aboriginal children should be placed with family, uh, or if not with immediate kin, with um, ab other Aboriginal uh, foster carers. And, and so there's a cascading sort of um, a, a process or expectation about the placement of Aboriginal children. And then Victoria's gone an extra step to say, actually, they, instead of the Secretary of the Department of Human Services um, who run child protection, it should be the Aboriginal agency doing that aspect of it as well. So, so we're seeing quite dramatic structural change. Is it, is it working? I mean, I guess... What you've been talking about is this multi-generational trauma, right? So it's not like everybody has healed or things have been restored for the the generations above. Um, that must be quite tricky. And what's the government doing about that? Well, there's been a range of different things and, and some of it hasn't been government-led, some of it's community-led and then government have caught on, you know. So that there's been um, advocacy from wonderful um, Aboriginal leaders who've really shone a light and, um, you know, uh, uh, demanded that there be change and respect and reverence and that, that families and communities be restored, you know. So... <laughs> So we stand on the shoulders of those Aboriginal leaders, really. Um, and um, so there's, a, a, we've just had a process, we actually, in Australia, we've just had a referendum uh, which was trying to get up and the Prime Minister led it, wanting there to be a voice to Parliament. Hmm. 
which Aboriginal um, leaders met from 2017 talking about um, the Uluru Statement Call from the Heart, which was to give Aboriginal people across Australia a voice, a stronger legislative parliamentary sort of place. And um, sadly, that was voted down because we didn't have bipartisan support. Um, The Conservative Party pulled out. Or, or didn't 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 uh, so it became quite it became a political football right right because in fact the Conservative Party here had initially um, you know talked about this sort of a decade ago you know mm. in a positive way the need for it so un, um, unsurprisingly um, you know there's been uh, lots of ripple effects of that uh, lots of grief lots of distress. And we came out publicly at McKillop to put out a public statement to support the voice. Um, increasingly, agencies, businesses have to have a reconciliation action plan mm. for the RAP, and this is the restoration part of it. So what actions, what are we going to deliver that will really show that we're walking that talk around respecting self-determination for Aboriginal people? And we're on our second one of those. And we have a wonderful leader, Esme Manahan, who um, has been such a beautiful colleague and is on our executive. We have an Aboriginal board member, Vicky Clark, who oversee. I'm the key uh, sponsor for that. So Esme and I have set up structures within McKillop to really hold ourselves accountable. And from every part of our organisation, there are... um, actions and we're accountable and we meet regularly we publish results um so we've got very concrete actions that we're holding ourselves accountable to um you know we march publicly at the NADOC march we we're active um, we have an aboriginal uh, staff network um we have we insist on cultural plans being part of every part of any child's life that we care for and in any one year, we care for about 3,000 children within McKillop's foster care and residential care programs, and we support kinship carers, family carers. So, you know, we're reasonably um, influential in the out-of-home care sector in Australia. So it's been very important for us to promote uh, this self-determination and our, our um, reconciliation uh, actions and to walk our talk. So we look for all sorts of ways to do that. Robin, I am thinking about the historical context um, that you gave us around um, Australian history. And I'm also thinking about where McKillop sits in that, right, as a an out-of-home care placement agency, um, which is also what m- my background is in. Um, so being part of the solution when you've historically been part of the problem is a really tricky, um, you know, interplay. I'm yes. I'm curious what that's been like for you personally uh, to be in this role and doing this work. Ah, it's put more fire in the belly. <laughs> you know, it's it's like you get a window of of time to make change and to uh, work hard. I work harder to um, to really embed systems that aren't person dependent. Um, so this, the way we train our workers, the, I insist on cultural training for every person that's inducted into McKillop as a staff member. 
our foster carers the same as volunteers. Um, we are actively transitioning any Aboriginal child that we can to, to our partners who are our Aboriginal agencies that we partner up with. Um, we have um, very active partnerships. For example, in Port Hedland, right up in the Pilbara region at the top of Western Australia, we were invited in by Aboriginal agencies to set up foster care on country uh, because their children were being shipped from the north right down to Perth. Um, so in partnership with the Aboriginal Medical Service up there, we've been able to um, develop services and which um, services that are preventing children coming into care, which makes my heart sing. So this is where my passion is. Ethically, we should be working to support families, you know, yes. and get kids home, get kids home if they come in. We know from the research the first six months of a child entering care is where the family's most motivated to change and to, to deal with the issues that have been um, so painful that have brought the children into care. So how do we support these parents? How do we work with the auntie, the grandmother, the uncle to set up family systems that that uh, can love and um, hold these children? Yeah. Beautifully so, said. Love your thanks. passion. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Robin. Um, we just heard from Robin Miller. Please join us next week with Maggie Bennington Davis at HealthShare and Tim Murphy at Bridgeway Recovery Services. Both of them are from Oregon. We'll also be joined by Caroline Finkel and Dr. Eli Muir from Charlie Health, and we'll be talking about emotional wisdom and empathy. You can reach us at creatingpresence.net or voiceamerica.com. See you next week. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Creating Presence. Join Sandy and Sarah next week for another informational episode. Until we talk again, check us out at www.creatingpresence.net and email us at info at creatingpresence.net. Have a beautiful week.